New Century Secret Rooms by Alexander Shaw Eternal brood the shadows on this ground, dreaming of centuries that have gone before. Great elms rise solemnly by slab and mound, arched high above a hidden world of yore. Round all the scene a light of memory plays, and dead leaves whisper of departed days, longing for sights and sounds that are no more. Lonely and sad, a spectre glides along, aisles where of old his living footsteps fell. No common glance discerns him, though his song peels down through time with a mysterious spell. Only the few whose sorcery's secret know Aspire amidst these tombs, the shade of Poe. Where once Poe walked by H.P. Lovecraft. Part 1. Beginnings. Chapter 1. The Lonely Boy From the Journal of James Penrose In February of 1873, when the Ismalia made its fateful approach into New York Harbour, bringing with it the downfall of civilization, I was 13 years old and living for what I believed would be a brief stint in West Virginia. My father had come out the year before to inspect and oversee his tobacco plantation, and my mother and I had come with him. That year, English newspapers had begun to feature occasional stories about something called Egyptian rabies, which was, at the time, sweeping Eastern Europe, India, and the Ottoman Empire. The pictures those first reports painted of its sufferers was something I found, even at my tender age, to be somewhat medically fascinating. It would be many months before it finally reached our shores. I recall the coach ride through London in the summer of 72, laden down with baggage, on our way to Liverpool. In particular, I recall the face of a scruffy urchin, some seven years old, who rushed up and perched on the side, shoved her grubby face through the window and blurted the following. That's a lot of bags. You're not going somewhere. We are sailing to the Americas. Can I tag along, Governor? She had traces of flower dust under her fingernails and in her hair. Light burns along both forearms. A baker's daughter. However, my father was having none of this tomfoolery. Get off immediately. But please, can I come? I want to see the world. The world, I thought. Up until that point, I had merely reckoned on the lengthy journey I would be taking and the hot, breathless confinement once we reached the eastern states. Being tutored by someone with less of a head for facts than myself until the time for business was concluded and we would eventually return to this rainy island where I would engage in further schooling and business. But the idea that I might venture far across unknown lands filled my young frame with an unaccustomed excitement. I'll be good. You won't even know I'm there. It was such an impassioned plea that I rather suddenly enjoyed the idea of granting an ocean expedition to a faraway land to someone who might never otherwise get the chance. Can she? 
Of course not. Street child, unlatch those pudgy fingers and find someone else to bother or you shall regret it. Get stuffed, your highness. The girl poked her tongue out and jabbed her index and middle fingers into a V before nimbly dropping from the carriage. I put my head out of the window and saw a boy with wonky teeth catch up to her. She bowed to him theatrically and they laughed at us. At that point I felt an odd compulsion to fling myself from the carriage and escape into the labyrinthine alleyways of London with these two rude, vibrant scallywags. My father gripped my shoulder and bodily pulled me back into the sitting position. One must not concern oneself with those at the periphery, boy. I nodded in compliance and we continued our egress from Queen and Country. On the RMS Oceanic, we put out to sea from Liverpool, en route across the vast stretch of blue Atlantic to New York City. She was a magnificent ship, drawing her power from two ages of technology, with four masts to fly the sails of the old world, whilst recently fitted additional boilers bolstered her steam power to propel her into the new. The White Star Line had spared no expense in her construction, and my family were affluent enough to occupy the upper echelons as three of its 166 saloon passengers. I recall sharply the staggering sense of scale she brought into my world as we exited our carriage beside her at port. This vast black edifice rising from the sea, monolithic in its presence, with a collection of snowy white buildings up on her deck, dizzyingly high above us, and that golden line running the length of her hull which divided the two. I watched the thousand steerage passengers filing up the gangplanks and into her bowels, where they would spend the majority of their voyage confined, and was struck by a fierce realisation of this inequity. It was perhaps the first time in my life that the divides of class had been symbolised so purely. I spent the initial day pacing the deck, hanging over the railings and watching the immense glittering sea, obligingly keeping to myself and not bothering the adults around me. By the evening, after we had dined upon boiled goose and my father had retired for brandy and cigars, I was left alone with my mother, Estelle, who was, once again, stricken by debilitating seasickness. James, could you bring me my green travelling bag? This one? No. No, darling. The other one. This one? No, 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 no. The other one. Ah, uh, this one? Where am I looking? I'm sorry, Mother. Scant and conflicting information. Don't jostle it. I have my pressed flowers in there, and I don't want you unsettling them. Bring it here to me. Would you like me to have you brought some ginger or peppermint tea? My sweet boy. Yes, that would be most agreeable. Here, this is for you. I can feel, by the shape and weight, that I'm holding a book. Very astute. It was that or a butterfly net. May I unwrap it now? Of course you may, my darling. 20,000 leagues under the sea. Oh, mother. Ooh, the latest from your Mr. Verne has finally been translated into English. I had to send Rosemary out to get it for you. And the theme is so alarmingly appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> May I read it now? 
Call for my tea and then read away. And try to make it last. We have many days for you to fill your time with. I shall treasure every word. And I did. The next days were spent both atop the ocean and beneath it, in the company of the fascinating and mysterious Captain Nemo. I read it on deck, in my cabin, whilst eating. I read it as I sucked away the last of the bag of peppermint humbugs that I had been rationing. I dreamed about it in my bunk. I went from being intrigued by this man to being wary of his wrath, to ultimately feeling great pity for the angel of hatred which he became, consumed by the wrongs wrought upon him and his dead family. His indeterminate fate at the close haunted me, and I fancied many ways he might have survived the maelstrom to further explore the seas, a lonely and remarkable figure ever traversing the darkest depths. Equally as intriguing as this man, however, was his ship, the Nautilus, a technological marvel based on Robert Fulton's design of the same name from the turn of the century, and further inspired by the advances in French and American submersibles in the 1860s. But those blunt, simple, ironclad craft could not compare with this magnificent creation of reasoning and imagination. Limited only by Jules Verne's own practicality, it was, in the author's words, a masterpiece containing masterpieces. I pictured wheels turning, felt pistons pounding as we sluiced through cathedrals of coral. I heard Nemo's baleful pipe organ playing its woeful songs to the sea, and breathed in the myriad saltwater odours of the ocean life that surrounded us. I will venture that this fictional craft transported me further and to more vivid places than the steel ship I travelled with in our meagre reality. America was indeed morbidly hot, and while I attended to my studies diligently, there was always more time than there was work available. We were lodged at Belworth Manor House, now on a skeletal staff as many had begun to head west during this troubled time. A weak scattering of rabbits, my father said, that would benefit few. Occasionally he would bring me along to his business meetings, brokering transport and distribution for his tobacco, whereupon he would rest one powerful hand upon my shoulder as he made his claims and promises, as though I were a Bible at a court of law. These men in linen suits, sweating in the heat, would be impressed with his commanding air and authoritative tone, and nearly always left with an agreement, though my father ensured that he waited until their hand was extended and placed his own hands in his pockets, watching them falter and draw back again. On only one occasion I asked about this peculiar habit. Father, I have a question for you. Very well. Why do you never shake their hands when you seal an agreement? I have seen many men do exactly that in West Virginia. When you shake a man's hand, you are greeting or parting ways on even ground. If you elect not to do so, you send out a clear message of who is in control. But I read about this. It's a cultural moor dating back millennia. The ancient Greeks used it as a way of showing they had no weapons hidden in their hands. 
And if that's the case, who knows how much further back and with which tribal societies this custom could have originated. It shows that you trust one another in such close proximity and contact. Does one shake hands with a king or an emperor? I don't believe so. And why not? Because they stand above us? Correct. They stand above all. But might a king shake hands with another king? Well, when a man I estimate to be my equal in standing approaches me with an accord that we shall both find beneficial, on that day I shall shake him by the hand. He searched for a way to best exemplify this concept. There is no sense in relegating oneself to the herd if one is the shepherd. You must be the best of men, James, or else be no man at all. Now that I look back, I do not recall him ever shaking my hand. Weeks after that exchange, I would be parted from my parents, as New York, Massachusetts, and Boston fell to the new encroachment of the creatures. A veritable flood of fleeing refugees from that area washed through the state heading west. We had avoided being overcome in England, but now this plague had finally caught up with us. My parents and I were not prepared, and we were leaving the plantation of a cotton magnate when our coach met the procession along the road. It seemed like we were the only ones heading back east, pushing fruitlessly against the current of bodies. There were frightened, disheveled people as far as the eye could see. I recall my mother's terrified face, my father's anger, and the screams when an individual in the crowd who had been hiding their wounds turned and took a bite out of the person next to them. From my window, I saw a ripple of chaotic movement as panic suddenly gripped the throng. We were dragged from the coach as people milled about this way and that. I was knocked to the ground and let go of my mother's hand, trembled and kicked as altogether in a heaving morass they fled the sudden carnage and more infected made themselves known. I remember thinking as a stabbing pain shot through my body from what I now suspect was a steel toe cap fracturing one of my lower ribs. I am going to die. My mother is going to die. My father is going to die. So many of these people are going to die. I was roughly pulled to my feet by a Scotsman with a grim face. He pushed me towards the edge of the crowd and told me to run. I glanced back again to ascertain whether my parents' faces could be seen, but I was unable to even make out the coach anymore. Such was the human swarm I now stood at the periphery of. This was a stampede that nobody could pull under control. My father's words filtered back and I broke from the herd, rushing as best I could over the fields and searching for anything familiar. We weren't too far from our plantation and I knew that this would be where my parents would return. I ran, holding my side and the aching rib there, over fields and through farmsteads, spotting the familiar telegraph towers that led to the road which ran past our front gate. And there, eventually, I found Belworth. It had been a week since I had beheld the manor house. It stood deserted, and I was to find inside, stripped of much of its practical necessities. The front door stood open, but not broken, so the remaining servants had either declined to lock up on their way out, or else were the perpetrators of its plundering. I walked the silent halls, spotting the empty spaces where lanterns or bedclothes, food 
and what little weaponry there was had been taken. I scavenged a little stale bread and jam and retreated to my bed, which mercifully was untouched. And there I waited, sleeping, eating, reading, waiting for my father to return and glare at me with a critical eye for not attending to renovations in his absence, waiting for the cool touch of my mother's hand upon my forehead. The worst moments were the dreams. At night, when all outside was black and silent, I would entertain that I could hear the creeping carriers of this vile malady scratching at my windows. They terrified me, and yet I retained my fascination. A facet of my intention was willing them to approach. So I slept less. I lay in the fortress of bedclothes, pillows and blankets I had created, a single candle illuminating my books as I read through the night, awakening each morning slumped in the shaded cotton walls, nurturing the tiniest hope that I would not be alone, but also a nameless horror that others would come. I soon got fairly sick of living in squalor and began to tidy the rooms, one after another, arranging the worryingly small amount of provisions in the kitchen storeroom. My father's study I restored to order, laying out his pen and ink, ludicrously under the impression that he might like to document their lengthy adventure when they returned. My mother's clothes that had not been stolen were re-hung carefully for her, should she wish to don her Sunday best. You must understand that what logic I had available to me was depleted by my tender years, my dehydration, and my willingness to fantasize in the face of despair. I watched many suns go down, picking over my decision to flee so many times that I fancied I had any other choice. Eventually, I had taken to wearing my roller skates around the house, foolishly risking injury for the thrill of clearing the empty hallway spaces in mere seconds. I took so many tumbles it is a wonder my rib healed at all. And then one morning, I had visitors. A woman and four men approached the front door while I was redoing my mathematics, sat upon the stairs. They would have seen a shocked, pale face look up from his exercises. For a moment, my mind raced over how secure this house was. Would I have to defend it? Construct elaborate traps with the scant materials I had at my disposal to discourage these invaders. The woman was clad in riding trousers and a shirt, wore a gun at her belt, and, in a moment of reassuring civility, knocked upon our front door politely. Forcing myself to trust in their non-aggressive demeanour, I opened up, nonetheless gripped with a dreadful sinking feeling I had been staving off for many days. This was admission on no small part that my parents had not returned for me. And with every moment that elapsed after that point, the likelihood would diminish until it was nothing at all. Anyone else in there with you? No. Have you seen my mother and father? Vincent and Estelle Penrose? Nobody by that name, son. You waiting for them? I am. You're British? Yes. It's all right. I won't hold it against you. She gestured to the four men behind her. We come here from Weirwood, just down the way. Got a little group going on there, and we're looking to supply it. 
Seeing as you're short on options, how about we strike a deal, you and I? What are the terms? You let us load up the wagon with whatever we can find on this land and in that house. Might help a bunch of folks survive this a little longer. And in return, you leave your parents a note to say where you are and come along with us and wait for them. Somewhere you can get three meals a day and actually lend a hand. Instead of playing little Lord of the Manor up in here all by your lonesome. Her eyes flickered across to the stack of books I had neatly arranged on the reception room table. If it'll sweeten the deal, I have a library. I tilted my head and looked into her solemn, kind face. She extended her hand. Do we have an agreement? I studied that hand for a long while. As the grandfather clock chimed behind me. Then I extended my own and shook hers, enjoying the warm skin and subtle pressure of contact with another human being. Yes, we have an agreement. Catherine Holloway. James Penrose. A pleasure to meet you. May I show you and your men to the most useful of equipment? I look back on that arrangement as a pivotal moment in my life, a life I am now fairly mathematically certain would have ended soon after, had this woman declined to knock upon my door. You have been listening to Episode 1 of Secret Rooms, Definitive Edition, The Lonely Boy, written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. James and Vincent Penrose, performed by Alex Shaw. Estelle Penrose, performed by Loretta Saylor. Catherine Holloway, performed by Maya Santandrea. Street Urchin, performed by Theo Lee. Toccata and Fugue, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach and performed by Kevin MacLeod. Celtic Impulse, Long Road Ahead, Stormfront, Classic Horror and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long. Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Wazenski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Secret Rooms Definitive Edition is available in its entirety to own via Bandcamp, along with the rest of the audiobooks from the New Century Multiverse. So if you love the story, that is a great way of giving back. We also thrive on positive reviews. Costs a few minutes of your time, means the world to us. And it spreads the word. So you can post those on iTunes or on Amazon, where you can find the Kindle versions and the beautiful paperback editions of these books. 